Hello and welcome to episode 72 of Sensational She Geek Live from Yancey Street. Highlights for this week's episode include several really exciting trailers that premiered in the past week. The comic book pick includes Flavor Girls number one. Unfortunately, I don't have too much to say about the X-Men's Hellfire Gala because it was fairly uneventful. In our comic book polls this week, we have three or two very exciting indie comics coming out, Seven Sons number two and Grimm number three. And of course, we will be discussing the finale of Ms. Marvel as seen on Disney Plus, episode six titled No Normal, which is of course a nod to the first arc of her comic series. Finally, we will be discussing Comic-Con 2022. I have a little Comic-Con preview brought up here. It's going to be happening this Wednesday um, through Sat or Sunday. It's going to be uh, the 21st, sorry, the Thursday, 21st through the 24th in San Diego. Um, there's a good amount of stuff that's rumored to be discussed specifically from the Marvel camp. So we're going to go over what all of those are supposed to be. And then next week we can see how accurate that was um, and cover what actually did get announced and previewed at San Diego Comic-Con. As usual, though, before we get started... If you would like to join the Yancey Street community, we have a Discord. The Yancey Street Discord does have a fresh invite link at the bottom of each episode. You just have to go to the latest episode and that will be the most recent link because they only last for seven days. It is a place for just like-minded folks of all types to chat about whatever you want. It doesn't have to be just uh, podcast-relevant stuff. It could be just life stuff because life is what all of us are experiencing. And sometimes you just kind of want to vent about stuff, and that's fine. Uh, but if you want to find me personally, you can find me easiest on social media, on Instagram. My username is Anna with the comics because my name is Anna, and I do have quite a few comics. Uh, my, if you want to do podcast updates, my Twitter is Savage Shigi because sensational was too many letters. My website is sensationalshigi.weebly.com. I have been working on fixing it up quite a bit so that it is still relevant in addition to the podcast, and that includes a beginner's guide to both comics and manga, which hopefully covers any information that you might need to take your first steps into those two worlds, including recommendations, which I have for graphic novels, for indies, for escape comics, for manga, and for current things that are still going. So hopefully there's something there that you, will strike your interest. Um, I also have reading orders of various leading ladies, um, a number of which are really relevant right now, and I'm going to be adding a new uh, leading lady to this reading list, um, collection of reading lists that I have, and that is Satana. She is going to actually be the October, the Halloween Yancey Street special, I've decided, so I'm going to start working on her character as well and updating it on the website as I go. Anything that you want to find pre-February 2021 will be found written on the blog. That was before I started the podcast, so any amount of reviews, comic book picks, or poll lists, um, discussions on series and topics, you can find that all as written matter on my Sensational She Geek blog. Uh, you can also find pod notes, which my podcast notes, which are there. Uh, it's what I kind of go through each week to record the podcast, and I have it up, I post them every week for reading the podcast, if that's better for some people instead of listening, and of course for those who are hearing impaired, so they can keep up with the podcast as well. Finally, you could find links to everywhere that you can listen to the podcast which is 
I believe most, if not all, podcast hosting apps, and also YouTube, where I post the podcast episodes in one uh, playlist, in case that's easier for ways for you to listen. Um, I do also post action figure review videos. It has been a lot more imports recently, as I've more or less given up on Hasbro's Marvel Legends line, but I do have a extensive backlog of Legends videos, including the HasLab Sentinel, and when we get the Galactus from Hasbro in in the next month or so, you can bet I will be going over him as well. Um, I also have a podcast Patreon. It's linked in the bottom of each episode's description alongside Ko-fi, Cash App, Venmo, PayPal, any other kind of forms of donation towards the podcast um, are in my link tree and that should all be available at the bottom of each episode's description. I have currently a Redbubble shop. I am having some issues with Redbubble. So um, while there are some stickers available on the Redbubble SheGeek shop is what it's called, I will be getting an official shop on my website, hopefully by the end of the year. Um, and I will have some branded geek-related merch as well as some fun other things, hopefully, um, if anybody is interested in that. Let's go ahead and get started with this week's news. I did mention there are a number of trailers that we had over the week that we're going to discuss. Those include the Munsters trailer, very briefly, the Harley Quinn Red Band trailer for HBO Max, and of course the Rings of Power trailer. Starting off with the Munsters um, fairly briefly here, because it is, it was a little bit dis disappointing. They had the teaser for this movie. It is a Rob Zombie project. The teaser looked pretty fun. The Munsters obviously being a camp project from an era that we are distinctly not in anymore. And it would look like, unfortunately, the era does not really mesh with what the era we are currently in. Um, even with those camp elements on top, it, it, the camp doesn't really translate, it seems into the modern era, which is unfortunate. Um, it's possible that this was Rob Zombie trying too hard to stick to the original, trying too hard to modernize what we saw in the original. I, I don't, I, I, who knows what the, what the issue is. I'm just going to go with the campiness of the original series doesn't quite translate into modern audiences very well, which is unfortunate because it was fun when it came out doesn't things don't always age well and it looks like if we're gonna have a good monsters project uh, it's probably not gonna be this one um, and maybe they'll have to take a different take on the monsters next time in order to make it palatable to uh, current audiences we'll say but if you did watch the trailer and you are still looking forward to this I'll probably watch it because why why the heck not it is premiering in September so just a little bit before Halloween who knows, maybe it'll be a fun thing to watch with a group of friends or, uh, you know, video chat online with people while you watch. Whatever it is people do these days, I don't know, uh, when it comes out for Halloween. Now, the Harley Quinn trailer, this is the Harley Quinn animated series that is on HBO Max. This is going to premiere with its third season, July 28th. They put out the Red Band trailer yesterday, the Red Band trailer being basically the R-rated version of their trailer, or possibly X-rated, I don't really know. Um, but this gave us a little bit of a plot of the show, as well as some fun insight into the hijinks to expect. And it does look like it's going to be keeping very much in line with the previous season, or seasons, I guess, um, and the kind of spirit of the show we saw then. I know there was a fair amount of audience who did not mesh with this show. Um, 
I believe that it's probably because they weren't expecting it to be what it ended up being, which, in my opinion, is absolutely fantastic and utter perfection um, and completely hilarious. Um, it, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's, it's, it's stupid, crazy, dumb, uh, which is why it's so good, because it's, it, it drives hard the Harley Quinn everything about her and Kaylee Cuco I don't know Cuoco Cuco I'm gonna say Cuco I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name um can we talk about her for just a moment she has had a very interesting arc for a actress and voice actress obviously uh, most people know her from the Big Bang Theory which I rewatched in its entirety a couple months ago and a lot of there's a lot of stuff in that that just you know, it has the nerd culture, the geek culture that they fabricated, and a lot of that stuff doesn't quite actually um, match up with geek culture as it actually is. Like, there's there's um, there's a line about them arguing if Wolverine originally was was born with with bone claws or was born with metal claws. Like, obviously, in the modern era, I think most people know the whole Wolverine story if they are comic readers, especially, which is what this character- I'm getting off track, but anyway, she was on the Big Bang Theory. We'll have to talk about that another time, because I feel like that does deserve a little bit of exploration, but I'm getting way off track here. So Kaylee Cuco, Cuoco, Cuco, we're just gonna say, um, she got married while, they, while she was on the Big Bang Theory, Ryan Sweeting, I, I only know that because I'm looking at the name on Google right now, um, and then she divorced him, and then she married this other guy, Carl Cook, and divorced him, I guess, last year, which I only bring up because um, when you look at her career path, you, she has the Big Bang Theory, which it looks like ran till, 20, ran till 2019. Wow, I thought it was way earlier than that. Um, ran till apparently 2019. Um, and then she has this Harley Quinn show, which started a couple of years ago, I guess probably 2019-ish as well. Um, and she's the voice actress for Harley Quinn, obviously. And it is a total 180 between her character in The Big Bang Theory and the, doing the voice of Harley Quinn. Um, obviously, she nails it. She is, does a fantastic job as Harley Quinn. I don't think we could have gotten anybody better if we tried for, for this particular project. But what I kind of wanted to point out, she started The Flight Attendant. It says apparently uh, 2020 is when the first season of that came out. Fantastic show. It's on HBO Max as well. Um... Um, the first season of that was good. The second season of that just recently came out, and there is a notable switch. Um, I'm not sure if it's in the writing or in the acting of uh, Kaylee Kuko, but you can kind of, it, based on the fact that she, you know, was going through a divorce when they were filming that for a second time, I just have this image in my head of every time Kaylee Kuko divorces a husband, her career takes massive leaps forward. <laughs> um, Big Bang Theory was with a dude there, divorced him apparently by the end of that, got the Harley Quinn job right after uh, divorcing the first guy, uh, obviously became really fantastic with that, had two seasons of that, did the flight attendant, divorced the second guy, did a 
absolutely remarkable second season of The Flight Attendant. Now she's getting a third season of Harley Quinn. It sounds like she is way more into the character than ever. It sounds fantastic. I just have to take a moment and appreciate the career path in combination with the personal life journey that it would seem to be of Kaylee Kuko, who it looks like is constantly having to reestablish her independence and then dominates. Um, <laughs> and I feel like that is worth mentioning because it does it does feel like a very Harley Quinn thing. You know, she keeps getting these men in her life who apparently are not the right choices. I just, you know, I just have the feeling that possibly they didn't jive with where her career was going, where her very outspoken character of Harley Quinn was going, where her um, flight attendant character was going, who was going through a lot of stuff. And I just have to kind of feel like each time she goes through these divorces, she is like I said, establishing once again her independence and the fact that she basically don't need no man to have a incredible career path. I hope that all kind of makes sense because that was something that I noticed uh, watching the second season of Flight Attendant. Um, there is a different feel. And I'm curious if others kind of got that. There's a different feel to her character um, after having the second divorce. And I would argue that that is um, Kaylee Kuko establishing once again her independence. Um, and that fits perfectly with this third season of Harley Quinn because based on the mild description that we're kind of able to pick up through the trailer here, it is going to be focusing on how Harley Quinn is a very unique character. We all obviously know her very well in this day and age, but she still has a lot of complexities to her. The show is going to be basically, as I understand it, um, she and Ivy are going to be terraforming Gotham, uh, getting rid of the humans. It's very Ivy of her. Love it. Um, although it does look like Harley is not so sure very privately um, that that's a good idea. But of course, it looks like Batgirl and Co, the Bat family, they're all going to figure out that, you know, Harley Quinn, she has a really good heart. Um, and so they're probably going to try and take advantage of that and use her to convince in some way or turn against Ivy, try to get her to basically stop the destruction by terraforming, which I would argue is not destruction of Gotham. Um, also, it does look like they are going to be kicking off the Kite Man show in this season, which I guess we kind of knew, um, but that is going to be something other exciting to look forward to. Additionally, um, on that thought, this show has obviously been really incredible with let's just say, uh, portraying Harley Quinn through a feminist lens. We'll just go with that. That's a simplified version of it. Um, I'm very curious with the Kite Man show taking place at the villain's bar and being obviously male-led. Um, I'm, I'm curious if the Kite Man show will keep up with that kind of theme, um, or if it will be a decidedly more, uh, mask project, we'll say. I'm, I'm curious about that as well. Um, in any case, what this all comes down to is basically, uh, I really love imagining, in not a creepy way, uh, Kaylee Kuko screaming these insane x-rated lines in some kind of box in a studio at home alone with a glass of wine. That just sounds like exactly what happens when she's recording this, and I would love to see that in not a weird way again. <laughs> Now, of course, we have to talk Rings of Power. This trailer was released on the 14th, and the show is coming on Amazon Prime September 2nd. So we are a little under two months away to finally see this beauty come to Earth, come to life, I guess. 
Now, before I talk about the trailer, I have a bone to pick. Um, first off, I am a huge Lord of the Rings fan. Um, everything Tolkien, I guess, would be a better way of putting that, because obviously Lord of the Rings is technically just the first three books. Um, or the really not even that, because the, the Hobbit series came first. But, you know, I, okay, I'm a big fan. Uh, movies were coming out when I was growing up. The books obviously were already out for a very long time. Loved all of that. The Hobbit obviously was a little bit of its own creative journey, but it was still extremely enjoyable. Now, I have a bone to pick with literally every other Lord of the Rings fan I have ever encountered. Um, and maybe somebody listening to this has a similar experience with fellow Lord of the Rings fans, and I cannot stand them! Lord of the Rings fans are worse than Star Wars fans. Offense meant... I am a Lord of the Rings fan. I can say that. Well, that's, that's problematic. Um, get over yourselves, basically, is, is what it comes down to. I, I understand that everybody wants, whenever something is translated from one form of media onto the screen in whatever kind of silver or, you know, movies or TV, whatever it is that is being translated into, there's always... It's never one-to-one, -one, basically, is what I'm saying. You get... You can have animes that are as close as one-to-one -one as possible, that are almost direct translations from their original manga, and it will never be exactly one-to-one. -one. That is simply nature of the beast. Look at the MCU right now, and all the people that we have bitching about Kamala, which we'll get into in a little bit, and obviously they have no right to be bitching about that. But that's based in the fact that certain things are established in the comics and they're changing it to go on in the MCU in a different way, which they have complete creative entitlement to do so because they literally own these projects. They owe us nothing as producers. You know, we are just these people who enjoy this topic. So why don't we just do our job, eat it up, enjoy it for what it is. And if we don't like it, you don't have to watch it. But the thing with Lord of the Rings that really gets me, especially when you get into these, this, Rings of Power, which is much more of an extension of what we original, what Tolkien originally wrote and published for his Middle-earth world, right? It's much more extensive. We're getting into the Cimmerillion, which I probably pronounced wrong. And the thing with that is, I have one really solid example that I'm going to go with here. People really need to stop bitching about how this stuff is not perfectly accurate to the books because there is a certain uh, I was reading about it yesterday when I was doing research for this podcast there is a certain purge night let's say um, I'm trying to I'm trying to describe it really quickly here really simply there's a certain purge night that happens in ancient middle earth history and it's basically this group of elves versus this other group and Tolkien in his writings described Galadriel who is of course a character on the show as being involved in that battle in that purge night however he never clarified which side of the battle she was on. In fact, it looks like he actually flip-flopped, describing her on one side and then on the other. Friggin' J.R.R. Tolkien, who created this stuff, hadn't even fully decided where Galadriel's role in that sequence of events was. How are we as fans going to sit here and bitch about the show not being exactly what it think we think it should be? All I have seen is people being 
oh, Lord of the Rings fans who read the books, they're not going to like this. I know because I, I fucking read stuff too. I'm getting really worked up now. I read shit too. I think this is fine. Um, I, I, Tolkien was obviously an amazing person, but this pedestal that people have put him on of, you cannot change a goddamn thing or you will burn in hell. This has got to stop. Really, it has got to stop. I have had the absolute most vile, putrid, rancid things that have ever been said to me have been said to me by Lord of the Rings fans. Why? I had the audacity to say I didn't mind the rumored nudity that might be showing up in the show, even if it is a sex scene, which we don't know yet. We just know that there's going to be nudity. Why are people so upset about that? Like, do you think that they just spawned magically? Like, we knew going into this, the show was not a show for children. I mean, arguably, I wouldn't call the movies movies for children either because reasons, but how, how are people so horribly offended by this show, by them taking very minor creative um, entitlements to make it feasible to put in the show. Like, why are people so upset about this? I am a huge lifelong Lord of the Rings fan. I am just happy we're getting more. And whenever I express all of these emotions, <laughs> this distaste for other Lord of the Rings fans that I have to people who are also Lord of the Rings fans, They'll be sympathetic and be like, oh, wow, I'm sorry you've had that experience with other Lord of the Rings fans. But they can't just leave it there. Not a single one has ever just left it there. They always have to tack on something about, well, I don't really like what they're doing with this either. But sorry you've had that experience. Or sorry you've had that experience, even though I agree with those people. Or sorry you've had that experience, even though I think of the movies or of the TV show as, as a different universe than the books actually were. Like, they can't just leave it. They can't just say, oh, yeah, you know, that sucks that other fans suck. They always have to add in, you know, it's not perfect and therefore it's not worth liking. Like, what? what is that? What is that? If you are somebody who is getting upset at me for, for asking these questions and discussing this, please look inward at yourself because odds are you are getting way too upset about a fictional story that people just want to celebrate and enjoy. Anyway, now that I've spent seven minutes talking about that, um, let's get into the actual trailer itself. Um, the beginning of the trailer shows the two trees of Valinor, which were basically the light-bearing trees from the ancient age. They were destroyed in the second, well, by the second age, so they're not going to be at all um, seen in the time period that we have been made familiar with based on the previous movies and things. Um, and what that means basically is we're going to be seeing a flashback to the time where the trees were actually there. Um, the second age is the time frame where this series is set. Um, I believe it is the third age is where the, the previous movies that we've seen were set. And since the trees were destroyed by the second age, that's how we know it's going to be a flashback because we see the trees in the trailer. Obviously that's going to be a flashback. Also it's going to be, um, I like absolutely love lore um, like, like mythology and origin stories and stuff. And I, I know I said I never read the Silmarillion, but, um, this, the, the matter of it, like the, the content, I just, oh, I'm so excited to see how they 
lay it all out here and what kind of mythos the show ends up giving us. Um, we also see Hobbit ancestors. Uh, they are called the Harfoots. Um, it's basically, we're going to see elves, dwarves, um, Harfoots, and humans the 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 men is what they call them basically so the the harfoots being the uh the pre-hobbit ancestors to the hobbits um i'm not sure how many years this you know you might count the second or the third age as but um it's a very very long span of time so the harfoots are not necessarily hobbits but they are the pre-hobbit species in the area and they're called harfoots it makes a lot of sense hard feet because uh, they are a very much foot-walking species, as we've become very familiar with at this point. Um, it's unclear at this point whether the Harfits that we're going to be seeing in the show have any kind of link to um, Frodo or Bilbo or any of the other characters who we saw in the previous movies or material, um, but we will just have to wait and see. I don't think they will be. I think that would be kind of uh, out of the way a bit. Um, to make that connection, but who knows? I could be wrong. We might actually see that happen. Um, some fans were, re I didn't actually notice this because I was so excited about other things that were going on in the trailer, but some fans did point out that there is a slowed down version of the Rivendell theme, uh, playing at the beginning of the trailer when we see a lot of these like elven cities and things. I can't, I say city, but it's, it's not a city. It's just like a place, you know, town. I don't know. Terminology. Um, unclear as if that is Rivendell that we're seeing there with the trees of Valinor. Um, again, didn't read the Silmarillion, so I don't quite have the extensive knowledge of this lore, but you bet your butt I am excited to learn. I'm just, I'm just a lot more familiar with the, uh, the main bulk of the Tolkien stuff that he put out. Something else that we know is going to be seen through a flashback, uh, is the Oath of Feanor, or Feanor... However that might be pronounced, we'll find out in the show, I am sure. This flashback is showing a group of elves, possibly, elven knights who are raising their swords up in the air in a very Knights of the Round Table kind of way. Um, it is, they're doing the Oath of Feanor, which is a special oath, oath taken by Elf King Feanor and his seven sons to seek and possess the gems, which are the Silmarils. The Silmarillion comes from them. Um, and that led to many conflicts during the First Age. Again, that's during the First Age. The show is taking place during the Second Age. And therefore, we know that whatever the scene is with the elves taking their oath here, that is going to be a flashback. How that's going to be related to what it is that we actually see. It could actually be related to that thing that I was just talking about um, in my little rant on Lord of the Rings fans. Um, the, the kind of purge night that I mentioned about how Galadriel was involved in it, but never actually actually specified which side, never clarified really which side that she was actually supporting. Um, that is related to the Oath of Feanor, as I came across doing my research yesterday. Um, so it's possible we will see that Purge Knight and Galadriel's involvement with it if we are seeing this Oath of Feanor from these seven elf sons. Now, as for Galadriel's vision, I did a little research and I was unclear on if she's actually having a vision or if she is simply using the term vision to describe things that she has seen as the line that goes directly before that is obviously uh, her talking to young Elrond and she's saying, you have not seen what I have seen. So um, it's unclear if that is just her having witnessed these horrors during her adventures 
or if this is something that she fears is yet to come. Um, I'm not quite sure on that one yet, but what it is that she sees is appearing to be um, dead elves floating in bloody water or possibly just red water. Um, it seems to become some sort of flamey situation going on in the background as well. Um, so I'm not sure if that is a like foresight vision or if that is just a history that she doesn't want to repeat itself. And finally, we will be seeing the Numenorean queen, Tar Muriel, uh, who is played by Cynthia Adai Robinson, and she is going to apparently be key and integral to the plot. You can see her in the trailer. She has that gorgeous, absolutely friggin' stunning headdress on um, as she stands by the, the in the city, the stone walls with the white flowers falling down on her. You can actually see somebody with her in that shot. Their name escapes me at the moment, but um, in my research on the trailer, uh, it turns out that, spoiler alert, she actually ends up being somewhat forced uh, into marriage with that person who was there with her. He's some kind of aide. Um, not a good guy, I guess. But uh, hopefully, I mean, if that's a thing that happens, hopefully we'll see her, you know, success around that as it is. Um, this show is set thousands of years before the Third Age. I wish I knew how many thousands of years is, but it takes place during either age. But um, Third Age, as I said, takes place where all the other movies happen. Um, and there are four characters who appear in this show that appeared in the trilogies, obviously played by all different actors. The first one is Prince Durin. Did we actually see him? The article I got this from says we saw him. Did we see Durin in the movies? I don't know, uh, but he is being played by Owain Arthur. He is the heir of uh, the throne of the dwarf clan Durin's folk. Obviously, we have Galadriel. She was played by Kate Blanchett in the original movies, and she was played by Morfid. It's quite a name. Morfid Clark. I wonder if that's Irish. M-O-R-F-Y-D-D. Uh, and then we have Elrond, obviously, was Hugo Weaving, absolutely bonkers good. I gotta stop saying bonkers so much. I'm, like, caught, cut, cut, stuck in a rut with saying bonkers to describe things. Uh, here's Hugo Weaving, but he's played by Robert Armeo, Armeo, possibly, in this show. And then finally, we have Isilador, who was played by, let's see, Harry Sinclair, it looks like, in the originals, we, in, the, in the very brief time that we saw him. Uh, Isildur obviously being the guy who uh, cuts the ring off of Sauron's hand and then goes to destroy it, but doesn't, and therefore... The events of Lord of the Rings happen <laughs> because of Isilador, and he is going to be in the show as well, obviously much younger, played by Maxim Baldry. Finally, the Rings of Power themselves are 20 magical rings that we saw in, in the Lord of the, well, the Fellowship of the Ring, I guess, uh, forged during the Second Age that give the user special abilities as the show is taking place during the Second Age. And the show is called The Rings of Powers. We are very clearly going to be heavily involved with those items. Um, of course, the rings are awesome. However, they do have the catch that they can be controlled by the One Ring, which is used by Sauron. And therefore, really, where they were just kind of things to kind of uh, seduce the various rulers of men, dwarves, and elves to his side of things. And we obviously all know how that goes. Um, Again, really don't understand all the bitching about this as a lifelong big, 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 big Lord of the Rings and Tolkien fan. Um, I'm just happy to see it. 
I don't really, I genuinely don't understand the other reactions this is getting. It's, it's super fun. Uh, it's a world that I love to live in. Why are you upset about it? As for the rest of the news, we just have a couple of points here. The first is involving a Daniel Kaluuya project. Um, you would probably know him from Get Out, Nope, Judas, sorry, wow, Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, he was also in Black Panther and Sicario. Um, he is apparently working on a live action Barney film. Uh, co-produced alongside Mattel. It was came out this week. He was interviewed that it is still in development um, and it is described as heartbreaking, which is not the take that I would have thought they would be making on this. Uh, what he has to say on the project when they discussed it earlier this week, Barney was a ubiquitous figure in many of our childhoods. He disappeared into the shadows, left misunderstood. We're excited to explore this compelling modern-day hero and see if his message of I love you, you love me, can stand the test of time. What the hell are- what are we gonna get? What is this? <laughs> I can't even imagine what this is gonna be, but, um... Assuming that it's real and not an absolute joke, I am very interested to see where this is going. We also got some more Wakanda Forever leaks uh, this week, specifically involving Riri in her Mark I armor. Uh, Riri Williams is Ironheart, who is the, uh, the young teenager from New York who picks up scraps of um, Iron Man tech and basically straps it all together and makes her own Iron Man suit. Uh, she ends up going by the name Iron Heart and getting kind of picked up by Tony Stark and she gets her own real suit and, and all that kind of fun stuff. Um, she is going to be appearing for the first time in Wakanda Forever, apparently, and then she will have her own Disney Plus show um, afterwards, probably in line with the Armor Wars show as well. Um, her Mark I armor in the image that leaked is very much a Mark I armor. It does look exactly what you would expect to see from somebody, a, a teenage genius who uh, found a bunch of Stark tech and strapped it together to make an Iron Man suit. It looks just like that. I would argue it looks much better than the Flash suit from the Justice League movie, which was supposed to have been made the same way based on Kryptonian tech having fallen to the planet. Didn't look like that. This looks like it was made from scraps and pieces. So um, looks like they're on a good track with her. Obviously, she and Shuri are going to end up teaming up in the Wakanda Forever movie. The last bit of news we have here is another, well, just is a rumor. Um, I'm kind of on the fence about how I feel about it. But the rumor is that Javier Bardem has been cast in the MCU as Mr. Sinister. That is Nathaniel Essex. Um, I'm kind of on the fence about that one because I kind of was thinking they might go with someone a little bit younger than Bardem is. Um, he is a bit of a scraggly guy and I just see Sinister as more of this clean cut, in appearance obviously, clean cut, well shaven, um, tight and sharp basically like a well-oiled machine because he's got so many clones of himself, right? <laughs> so he can perfect himself visually. It's, it's literally what he does. Um, but I don't know. Javier Bardem obviously has the acting chops. Um, if they can visually get him to look like Mr. Sinister, then I, I think I'd be happy with that. 
For this week's comic book picks, things that came out on the 13th, my pick of the week is Flavor Girls number one, which I am very excited to talk about. Uh, we're also going to discuss briefly Immortal X-Men number four, Captain Marvel number 39, Daredevil number one, Immortal Red Sonia number four, uh, Axe or AXE, I'm not sure how they're doing that, Eve of Judgment number one, and uh, a little bit of a bitch session on X-Men Hellfire Gala number one. But starting off with a pick of the week came from left field, Flavor Girls number one. This is from Archaea Comics, and it is by someone whose name I genuinely don't know how to pronounce, but we're going to try anyway. Loic Locatelli Kernwuski. I'm so sorry. Uh, anyway, this shit was awesome. I loved it. Um, it's it's like, uh, it's magical girls, right? It's magical girls who are themed with fruit. <laughs> um, absolutely adore it. Super duper cute. Uh, plot is basically uh, aliens show up on this planet. They end up not being peaceful. 12 years on, they have these three flavor girls who are protecting the world. And then this French girl is chased down uh, by an alien attack. First alien attack in a long time. She comes across a, a giant pineapple. She goes inside and becomes the pineapple flavor girl. Oh, it's really cute. Okay. Um, uh, their headquarters is this cool place in another plane of time and space. I didn't mean for that to rhyme. Um, I just really enjoyed this. It's 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 gonna be a lot of fun, and it was it was wholesome fun, but also just genuinely good. Um, so check out Flavor Girls if you did not this past week. Immortal X Men number four was from Emma Frost's point of view. Um, basically, now the news about mutant immortality is out. Um, and the only other thing that really happened in this is Dr. Stasis, who is, uh, I guess, the big new villain over in the main X Men book, which I'm not keeping up with because I, I didn't like it. Um, he is claiming to be the real Mr. Sinister, well, the real Nathaniel Essex. Um, Essex is known for having the little diamond on his forehead. Well, this guy has a spade. Is that what they call it? Spades? Clubs? Diamonds? Hearts? Yeah, spade. Um, so I, I guess they're just gonna, they're, they're just, Duggan is trying something new with the Sinister stuff, and it's fine, whatever, we've done this before, but I guess we can do it again with Sinister, but, you know. History doesn't change for the X-Men, so I don't know what they expected to have differently with him. Anyway, Captain Marvel number 39, um, the, the subsequent issue after this issue 40 is solicited to have Binary in the position of villain. Um, I think that might, fingers crossed, that might have ended up being um, a false tease. It looks like uh, Binary isn't actually going to be evil. She is just going to be fighting L'Oreal, who is Carol's half-sister, because she is concerned about Carol and doesn't know who Binary is. Although, didn't they go to the dance together? I think they did, so... She knows Binary. I guess she just thinks that Binary did something to Carol because Carol's missing. Anyway, Carol is facing off with some kind of magical mind trap thing, and it's the magical community like got together to face off with her and what I'm more curious about all of this is I would like to see like their side of things obviously we're seeing this all from Carol's point of view of she's on trial for 
uh, causing harm to the magical community. And then you have these people from the magical community, like Brother Voodoo and Magic, and I don't remember who the other one was, um, who are her friends, her allies, and they're just and they're meant to put her on trial, and they are, and they're not even questioning it. They're putting her on friggin' trial. Um, I would love to see this from their perspective because obviously Carol does not get the magical community because she's she does not understand what's going on. We don't even understand what's going on, but I would love to understand. So I would love to see, you know, magic's perspective, voodoo's perspective on 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 why they are doing this and what it is that makes this their role that they have to take up. I'm just curious. Daredevil number one is by Chip Zartsky and Marco Cicchetto, which is the same creative team that finished off the last Daredevil run. Why they are starting it off with another number one, I don't know. Uh, but it's the same creative team as last series, and it's really good. I think it's going to be a nice, fun series. Uh, we have Goldie arrives. He is apparently some old rival. Uh, it turns out that he has some kind of powers. He blows up uh, a train that Matt's friend, or I should say X, I guess, off and on X, Kirsten is on, um, supposedly killing her and everybody else on it. Uh, Matt is going to be leaving New York. That's why he wanted to say goodbye to her. I think he's going to California again? Um, not 100% sure. It was a little bit unclear. I Granted, I did not read Devil's Reign um because it was just not that interesting to me to be honest but um Matt is going to New York um and I guess now he has become the leader of the fist um which they had discussed in the previous series this is going to be alongside Electra he's going to be the leader of the fist um but now that this Goldie guy has arrived and possibly is the character who we saw speaking with Bullseye in the previous series, which never got explained. <laughs> Bullseye started, Bullseye had some character who was like this glowing figure uh, telling him that he needed to kill everyone in Hell's Kitchen for some reason. Um, and I think that's Goldie. I think we're finally catching up on who the heck that was. <laughs> um, and then meanwhile, Electra, uh, she reunites with Stick um, ends up fighting him and beating him because, let's be honest, Stick's just an angry old man. Um, Axe, Eve of Judgment, number one, it was by Karen Gillan. I was very surprised how incredibly uninteresting it was. Um, it was so meh that I probably, I probably won't bother reading much more of the event. I don't know. This one was entirely Eternals-based, so maybe once they add in the other two sectors that we're supposed to be seeing here, the X-Men and the Avengers, maybe it'll get more interesting. <laughs> Who knows? I was just extremely not thrilled by this. Speaking of extremely not thrilled, X-Men Hellfire Gala number one was way mid. Was like low-tier mid. Um... I, 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 the new team lineup, which is fine. You get some very disappointing outfits. You get Moira wearing MJ to the gala. She like takes over her mind. It's not good. It's not a good plot. Um, basically, I, I, the new lineup is mostly good. I, I really, really hate the way that Jean was written here, though. Um, it, it felt like she belonged to Scott, and I, it, I get that this was a Hickman thing, and he's gone, but. In my opinion, Jean is more or less all generally polyamorous, or at the very least, 
she has sex with who she feels like when she feels like. Um, there's a line in here where John Hamm, for whatever reason, is at the gala and act- it's because he's... As Scott says, oh, he's Jean's hall pass. I'm sorry, what? Um, first of all, when did Jean belong to Scott? Since when? Second of all, why would she need a hall pass from friggin' Scott? Um, again, we were very much established that she was screwing who she wants to, when she wants to, without anybody's permission except for the screwee. Um... Why would she need a hall pass from Scott? And third, I get John Hamm is like, you know, traditionally handsome, but John Hamm, really, Jean would have better taste. She would have, she would have had somebody much more interesting. Um, and granted, I did stop reading the main X-Men series because of similar reasons of both Jean and Emma Frost feeling miswritten as if they belonged to Scott. I swear to God, Jerry Duggan has a hard-on for Scott Summers. I don't get it. Um, Scott is literally trash. I will fight you for that. Uh, Scott is absolute trash. He does not matter in the slightest in the realm of X-Men stuff, unless he is doing battle things. Um, but in any other, aside from doing battle things, being the captain commander, basically, uh, he doesn't matter. <laughs> Anyway, uh, C.B. Sapolsky, the head editor at Marvel, had a cameo. Absolutely hated that. This man is a man who got a job by claiming that he was Asian. Uh, basically uh, lied about his ethnicity. He is not Asian. He is a extremely fat... Sorry. He is a very large white dude. Basically, he should not be out here complaining. Like, if nobody... Sapolsky does not have a right to complain about any, how anybody looks like, basically. But anyway, um, <laughs> he had a Gwenpool cameo next to him, which was really cute. Him being in there made me want to vomit, but okay. Uh, also, the outfits were generally god-awful. Um, most of them look like a new take on the current superhero look of the character in question, which is super not creative, and in a lot of the cases it wasn't even good-looking a lot of the time. Um, you know, they, they, they once said that the Hellfire Gala is the Met Gala for the Marvel 616 comic universe, right? So maybe if we do this again, try a theme for the outfits. I don't know. This was just wildly disappointing. None of them really were noteworthy in the slightest, and a fair amount of them were genuinely, genuinely not good. Um... So that was that was pretty disappointing. And there was nothing notable event-wise either. They they just used this to kick off whatever the heck it is that's happening with Moira next, which is apparently going to be in the Spider-Man book. Um, and then rubbing in the fact that the immortality news is now out, which did not happen even really this week. <laughs> um, immortality news has been out since any of these issues, since before this week's X-Men issues came out. So I don't really... Wasn't, wasn't announcing that either. It was just kind of a boring issue. It was extremely droll. How do you make the Hellfire Gala special, the Met Gala for the mutants, the most sexed up group in comics, period? How do you not have that be more fun? <laughs> Clearly my expectations after last year were far too high. There was nothing anywhere near the level of terraforming friggin' Mars to be livable. Um, in this gala event this year. It was 
wildly boring. The outfits were completely disappointing, and the cameo of Sobolski made me want to upchuck lunch. For this week's comic book polls, these are comics coming out the 19th and 20th um, for DC and everything else. My most anticipated releases this week are definitely Seven Sons and Grimm. We have Seven Sons number two, which is Jay Lee on art, absolutely stunner, uh, written by Robert Windham and Kelvin Mouse, coming from Image Comics. Uh, with the first issue of this, uh, I couldn't get enough of, basically just blew my brain out of my skull completely and just filled my skull, that the cavern that was left in there up with serotonin. Um, if you hear that noise, that is a electric Hummer that some children are riding around in, in the park next door. Sorry for the squealing. Um, <laughs> I don't even know if you could hear it, but Seven Sons, that will be my number one anticipated read this week. Um, just, it's going to be a, a seven issue series, I believe. Uh, I, I can't even like describe how amazing this was. It was, it was, I'm trying not to say bonkers again, but it, it was that. It was so good. Uh, and then Grim number three, this one is by Stephanie Phillips, who I love as a comic writer, and art by Flaviano Armentaro, um, who is also stupendous with their art style for this. This is from Boom Studios. We have variants, notably by Jenny Frizen. She is doing a variant for each issue. Um, featuring different characters from the comic. We also have variants by Christian Ward and Inyuk Lee. Um, Grimm has been really, really interesting, like actually interesting um, for, uh, for the first two issues, so I, I expect the third to be equally fantastic. Getting into the rest of the comics that are coming out this week, um, and again, this is not everything that comes out, this is just my personal list of things I'll be checking out. Uh, starting off with Artemis Wanted, number one. The cover is by Matteo Scalera, art by Skylar Patridge, and writing by Vida Ayala. Vida Ayala is a fantastic Afro-Latinx non-binary writer. Um, notably, recently they were working on New Mutants. Actually, I think they are still doing New Mutants. Um, and I, I have to kind of preface this, first of all, I did not read Trial of the Amazons. I started it, um, didn't like where it was going, so I stopped reading it. And now looking back on the descriptions of everything that happened in the event, so glad I didn't read it. Um, I, personally, I think this was a horrendous choice of topic for the first Wonder Woman quote-unquote event, because it really wasn't an event, in decades. Because what was this except for women fighting among themselves yeah that that was not a good look dc i don't i don't know whose idea this was but there was one man on board so i'm gonna blame him <laughs> the rest of the creative team was all female so i'm gonna blame the one dude on board because this shit was bad um Basically, if you want to know what happened in Trial of the Amazons, uh, Hippolyta was murdered, and they're, they're, the trial itself is just them deciding who's going to be queen, and nothing ends up actually changing with that, because we knew it was going to be uh, Nubia anyway, so I don't, I don't really get what the whole point of this was, but um, 
basically Cassie, who is Wonder Girl, one of the Wonder Girls, she deduces that Artemis, who is one of the Bynum McDowell Amazons, she illegally took poison and murdered Queen Hippolyta, uh, and Nubia arrests her. So because of the oath that um, Artemis swore to Hippolyta, she refuses to explain why she killed her. So I guess we're going to get some of that in this one shot. Again, terrible choice of event for the first Wonder Woman-centric big thing happening in comics in decades, just women fighting amongst themselves, because why would you want to break cliches in the modern era that aren't accurate? Let's just keep driving those home. Thanks, DC. Barnstormers number one kicks off a fantastic line of indie comics this week, uh, just to list them off. Indie number one's coming out this week. Barnstormers number one, The Brother of All Men number one, Blink number one, Canary number one. Now three of these are by Scott Snyder, so we'll see how that goes. Dark Spaces, Wildfire, number one, Little Red Ronin, number one, and She Bites, number one. I told you, it is a golden era for indie comics. Uh, but starting up there at Barnstormers, this is coming from Comixology, which is a digital comic publisher. This is by Scott Snyder, with art by Tula Lotte. It says, a high-flying adventure romance set just after the First World War. This Bonnie and Clyde romp brings together writer Scott Snyder and the breathtaking illustrations of Tula Lotte, her longest sequential work to date. We also have Brother of All Men number one, which is one that I actually talked about last week, actually. Uh, so we're going to skip that and go straight into Blink number one from Oni Press. It says Ren Booker was three when she found catatonic and she was found catatonic and covered in blood on the streets of New York. Since that day, she's been haunted by a childhood she can't remember. After decades of searching, Ren stumbles upon a cryptic website streaming multiple CCT feeds from strange rooms in a ruined building, and something clicks, setting off hidden memories that lead her back to the place she's been in lifelong nightmares. Hunting for answers, Ren breaks into the building, but instead finds herself entangled in the, uh, in the camera-filled dark mazes of decayed social experiment known only as Blink. That's a lot going on. Um, the covers are by Erica Henderson, who is fantastic, and Alarici. Canary number one is two of three for Scott Snyder this week, with art by Dan Panosian, who is really, really great. This is another one from Comicsology. It says, It's 1891 and a mind collapses into itself. Find out what the dark substance found 666 feet underground is in this horror western. That's actually kind of it for the description. Uh, which brings us to Dark Spaces Wildfire number one, the third of three Scott Snyder issues this week, with art by Hayden Sherman. This one comes from IDW. It says, six weeks into the slow burn of the prehistoric, oh, sorry, of the historic Arroyo fire, a crew of women from an inmate firefighting program are risking everything on the front lines when their newest recruit, a white-collar convict with a deep network of shady dealers, discovers their meal mile, mere miles from her crooked former associate's mansion. When she proposes a plan to abandon their duties and hunt for riches under the cover of smoke and ash, the team must decide if they're ready to jeopardize their one sure path back to normalcy for a shot at a score that would change their lives. But is this a flicker of fortune or a deadly trap? That's pretty much it for that one. Uh, Little Red Ronin number one comes from Source Point Press by Garrett Gunn and Kit 
Wallace says a terrible beast has haunted the citizens of Poletown for decades. Although the monster hasn't been seen in years, disappearances and gruesome killings still plague the townsfolk. Determined to, determined to clear her family name, Red hunts the great wolf in hopes of exonerating her grandfather, who lives in exile for spreading terrifying propaganda. So it's obviously a take on Little Red Riding Hood. Um, we have a, an uh, actually amazing amount of covers. Um, there's a couple of homage covers, which is kind of fun. You've got a Pepe Valencia, a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles number one homage. Garrett Gunn does an Amazing Spider-Man 300 homage. And then uh, John Gackiger, I'm sorry, I don't know how to say that, did a Venom number three homage. Other than that, we have covers by Aaron Bartling, Raymond Gay, Pepe Valencia, Sean Anderson, Hui Din, Alessandro Michelli, Malia Ewart, Ivan Tao, uh, Vinicio, Vicin oh, sorry, Vicenzo Riccardi, Ryan Kincaid. Oh, sorry, Ryan Kincaid's actually doing a Kill Bill homage, homage. Oh, uh, and then we also have Trish Forster and Zoo or Zoo on the covers. So that one is probably going to be a hit. Usually when they have 50 billion covers, <laughs> it's because they know it's going to be a good sell. She Bites, number one, is from Scout Comics by Hedwig Hale and Alberto Hernandez Jr. Elsie Baker is a 134-year-old vampire in the body of a nine-year-old girl. Sick and tired of stupid adults treating her like a lost little girl and not letting her buy cigarettes, Elsie decides to hire a babysitter to be her chaperone. Enter Brenda Zielinski, a suicidal teenager in search of some quick cash so she can buy a one-way ticket to Scotland to jump off a cliff. Despite the generous payday, it turns out that babysitting a vampire may be more trouble than it's worth. We have covers uh, on this issue by Diana Na Na Neva and Digi Daguna. I'm so sorry, that is definitely not how that's pronounced. Getting out of the Indies a little bit, we have a number one from Marvel, Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings. Uh, this is by Jean Luen Yang, who is a fantastic Asian-American writer, and Marcus To on art. Covers... My cats are messing around behind me. Covers are by Art Germ, Jim Shung, Lionel Francis Yu, Chris Bachalo, and Dyke Ruin. It says a bold new era starts here. Shang-Chi has gained possession of the powerful Ten Rings, but so much concentrated energy has not gone unnoticed. Now every bounty hunter, assassin, and evil syndicate in the Marvel Universe is coming to take the rings from him. But will the responsibility and the truth of the rings be too much to bear for the master of Kung Fu? Find out as the true origin of the Ten Rings starts here from Jin Luen Yang and Marcus To. This is also Legacy Issue 139, so this is the 139th Shang-Chi issue. Another number one from Marvel Comics is Axe Judgment Day. I know I was not impressed by Eve of Judgment. We'll see how this one goes. This is by Karen Gillen again with art by Valerio Shitty. Yes, that is his name. Uh, in the land of the righteous, the X-Men claim they're the planet's new gods. The Eternals know that position is already filled. The Avengers are about to realize exactly how many secrets their so-called friends have kept from them. Years of tension lead to a volcanic eruption as two worlds burn. Who has leaked the X-Men secrets to their latest foes? Why is Tony Stark abducting an old friend? And who stands in judgment over the whole world? Judgment Day from Karen Gillan and Verlet... Paletio Shitty is an apocalyptic emotional event to define the summer. God, hopefully it's better than the 
than the Eve of Judgment issue, because that was super boring and not at all emotional. We have covers for this one. Mark Brooks does the main covers. We also have Jack Kirby with a hidden gem. Obviously, Kirby is not with us anymore. They have a cover of his as a hidden gem. They're calling it one of 50. Mark Brooks has a black and white one of 100. Then we also have David Nakayama, Patrick Gleason, Ron Lim, Peach Momoko, and Lucas Wernick has a Women of Axe variant featuring Thena. Samurai Sonia number two comes from Dynamite Comics by Jordan Clark and Pascal Colano. This one has covers by Leary Lee, Pascal Colano, a cosplay cover, as well as Clayton Henry. Alice Ever After number four comes from Dan Panosian, who writes as well as draws, and Giorgio Spalletta. Uh, it has a wonderful Stephanie Hans variant, which I definitely recommend. I love Stephanie Hans' artwork. And this one comes from Boom Studios. This is going to be the penultimate issue, I believe. He usually does five Panosian. Bloodstained Teeth number four continues Christian Ward's indie vampire project uh, with art by Patrick Reynolds. This comes from Image Comics and has a variant cover by Alex Ekman Lawn. She-Hulk number five is by Rainbow Roll and Luca Marches Maresca with Rico Renzi on art. There is a really cute um, Romina Jones variant who actually did her own corner box, which I appreciate the heck out of because the standard covers are by Jen Bartel and also have their own corner box. Usually if people do variants, they don't try to mimic in any way what the main cover did. They do their own thing, which while Romy Jones here did do her own thing, she added that corner box to match the main cover and it is adorable. It says about this issue, Jen Walters has been around since 1979, but this issue holds a first for her. The mysterious villains surely don't care and plan on destroying her and Jack of Hearts. For She-Hulk, this is the Legacy issue 168. This is her 168th issue at Marvel. Uh, the last comic on my pull list is Catwoman 45. This will be the last issue of Catwoman that I read from this arc or from this uh, series because it is the final Jenny Frizen variant. Um, and that is why I've been collecting the series, so I am otherwise generally just not interested. Uh, other covers are by Carla Cohen, Soza Micah, who is stupendous, and Ji Hyung Lee. I have been so excited to talk about this episode all week. It is Ms. Marvel episode 6, titled No Normal. This was the finale episode that premiered on Disney Plus last Wednesday, and here we are going to spoil it all. So if you haven't watched it and don't want it spoiled, maybe don't don't be here. Um, the title is, of course, a No Normal. It's a nod to the Ms. Marvel Volume 1, 2014, titled No Normal, as uh, the arc goes. This was by G. Willow Wilson and Adrian Alfona. Uh, I do have, I will be quoting this interview throughout the discussion here, but I do have a really good interview with the directors of this episode uh, from Entertainment Weekly. So I will have that linked in the description as well if you would like to just read the article yourself. So the episode starts as her family, Kamala's family, returns to the U.S. and the rest of her family is filled in on her powers situation. My immediate question was, 
is anyone else in her family powered? We obviously kind of get an explanation uh, at the end of the episode as to why they aren't. And at that point, we also learn that Bruno had already been approached by Amir about the possibility of him having the same powers. I also really like that Kamala's family learns about her powers pretty much ASAP so that she can still be genuine with them and they can retain that kind of close family dynamic. I don't think her family knows uh, her powers still to this day and age in the comics. I could be wrong about that. One of the directors in the Entertainment Weekly article uh, talked about the family side of things. He says, it's kind of refreshing to go smaller, more intimate, and more relatable, and then contrasting it with the big superhero aspects. It's all about the character, and you need a lot of heart to make those heavy visual effects and CGI scenes eventually work. Importantly, Kamala does receive her costume from her mother. She actually gets it in a toffee box, which we know from earlier episodes is the suite that her grandmother Sana keeps around because her mom always liked them as a kid. Um, although I did take that line as a bit of an excuse and Sana probably loves them just as much. Uh, having just come back from visiting her sauna in Pakistan, it does make sense that the costume traveled home in a toffee box, which is a nice cute little detail. The, what it all comes down to is that the uh, Ms. Marvel and her friends end up having a final stand with the DODC, the Department of Damage Control, at their high school. Um, they had, had to leave where they originally holed up in the mosque in order to keep attendees of the mosque safe and neighboring plate people safe. Uh, and then Sheikh Abdullah gives Bruno and Kamran baseball caps to wear as disguises on the way out, which, yes, is a little bit of an inside joke. Uh, referencing previous MCU baseball cap uh, disguises. <laughs> uh, but the funny thing about these is that they actually say halal and haram on them in uh, big letters. And obviously, um, Kamran wore the halal and uh, Bruno wore the haram one. But what was actually even funnier about these hats, the letters, it's the Ray Dunn font. You know, the Ray Dunn products from like, um, marshals and stuff that people for some reason like um it's it's the ray dunn font which i just found to be really humorous and entertaining uh so anyway they have their final stand at the school it was not actually supposed to happen that way um the dodc boss actually told the scary racist lady to retreat basically and like we can't this is not a good pr fighting kids especially muslim kids like this is bad um so he orders her to stand down and she does the opposite and she actually brings in more soldiers or whatever they are guards i don't know uh to where kamala and her friends have taken kamran to their high school the kids know that they only have so long before the school is stormed so they end up setting up as many distractions and path blocks as they can which is meant to slow down the soldier guard dudes while Kamala and Kamran look for a way out without gathering any further attention. Um, the DODC officer actually has, uh, she, she is a very good, scary racist actress. Um, she does complain at one point even that the destruction of the circle cube is what happens when the wrong people get powers and people look at her like, did she just say what I think she said? And then she goes, 
kids. Like, okay, yeah, kids is totally what you were going to say. Uh, Amir also shows up to the school saying that he went to school there and knows all the ways to sneak in. Unsurprising, he seems to have gotten up to a little bit of mischief in his high school days as well, which is fun. Uh, and also he's there because Muniba apparently wanted him to keep an eye on his litter, his, uh, his little sister. They're also joined by Zoe, who was taking selfies in the theater room when they barge in. Uh, fun fact, I actually have the purple and black Zebra Strike sweater she was wearing. I don't remember where I got it, uh, but it's comfy. It's a bit thin, though. Uh, the directors also confirmed that uh, the whole distractions thing was an homage to the Home Alone movies. They say, together with our visual effects team and our director of photography, we came up with things that were visually interesting and funny that could maybe pause the bad guys, but not too much because it still needs to be realistic. That was a big challenge. And you actually do see that in the show, how all of these things are simply slowing them down, not actually making them stop for any amount of time. They're just getting them as much time as they can um, with those little distractions. Uh, eventually, a crowd gathers outside the school due to Zoe's social media pool and thinking that having witnesses might be what saves their lives when it comes down to it. Unfortunately, that just puts them, the witnesses, right in danger when Comron blasts out um, of the building in a rage because uh, we do end up having him discover that his mother had passed. They were trying to keep it from him because they knew that it would set him off, um, but he he does figure it out, um, and the anger and pain pretty much make him lose total control over his powers. So to save everybody on site, we finally see a bit more of the extent of Kamala's powers. Um, she does do the embiggening. It's much more like armor from the X-Men, and they even said it was somewhat inspired by her look as well. No, that does not mean that armor can't exist in the MCU, not that it was ever very likely anyway. Uh, we also see the DODC using energy pulse weapons like we saw on a much bigger scale in the Incredible Hulk movie. Um, however, choosing to use it against kids is a interesting choice. <laughs> I'd also like to note that Kamran's powers are much more clearly crystalline shaped than Kamala's are. She makes like constructs and he makes crystal structures. His power in the comic has to do with energy disbursement, um, but, but they made it look pretty cool here. The colors were accurate. They made it look pretty good. In the climax of the fight, Kamala is able to get the message to Kamran that he needs to go. Um, and her friend Kareem from the Red Daggers can help with the kind of, I guess, underground railroad style of team getting him to Pakistan. So Kamran, he's able to take off. Um, I would say the, the most unbelievable thing is Kamala just like punches a hole in the ground and he goes... That was probably the most unbelievable thing. I was like, okay, that, that was a bit much. Uh, Kamala then is able to escape DODC custody when the crowd breaks through the barriers to surround her in a very much... Oh my gosh, he is losing his mind over there. He's chasing his tail. Wow, he is dumb. <laughs> anyway. Um, uh, it's very Peter Parker style of thing. You know, from the Spider-Man movie, they see, they see that he's Peter Parker. They give him his mask back. And they're like, we're not going to tell people. You're the hero. You're a ground level hero. So she very much has that moment with the citizens of uh, her New Jersey town here. So... Um, on her powers from the EW interview, the directors say that embiggening is one of the most important words in her comic book. So we knew right away in that finale, we needed our version of her embiggening. And that is definitely what we get.
get there. As for the ending of the episode, one of the directors um, have to say a nice little thing on this. The ending finds her on the lamppost overlooking uh, the New York. Um, it, it's a very famous picture from the comics. Um, and so what he has to say is, when I read the comic book, I was like, that should be the final moment of the show. When we were doing that shot, everybody felt goosebumps. Like, this is it. This is finally the moment where Ms. Marvel is sitting on the lamppost in New Jersey, looking at New York and ready to conquer the world. Now, on the Urdu meaning of Kamal, during the episode, we uh, hear from Kamala's father that they named her Kamal because of the Urdu meaning of the word um, and Kamala being the female version of that. Now, I did some research on that to see how legit that was because obviously she's been in the comics for quite a while and nobody has ever actually explicitly pointed that out to the best of my knowledge. Um, and here is kind of what I came across. So there are one, two, three, four different languages that use the word Kamal. Uh, in Arabic, it's actually, I should tell you, it's spelled K-A-M-A-A-L. So in Arabic, um, where it, the word originates from, Kamal means perfect, perfection, or excellence. The Hindi version of the name, um, it says the Hindu name of Sanskrit origin is usually spelled Kamala, and that one means lotus or pale red. In Persian, it means beauty, perfection, excellence, completion, or utmost level, and in Urdu, it does mean marvel. That being said, though, I have to note that the same website I found that on also has multiple meanings of Kamal, such as accomplishments and perfectness. So there are multiple meanings of the word even in Urdu, it seems, one of them meaning marvel. Um, and to get to the main event, I guess, finally at the end of the episode here, Kamala is revealed as the first mutant of the MCU. Um, she has her powers, Bruno says, due to a genetic mutation. And when Bruno tells her that, you can hear a mini little electrified version of the 90s X-Men theme. Just in case anybody uh, had any questions about whether that was what he was referencing, yes, he is referencing mutants. Uh, I have a little list here of cast crew reactions. Uh, it was apparently kept very hush. I mean, understandably, he kept very hush hush throughout production. In fact, the entire cast, out of the entire cast, only Iman Vellani herself was privy to the plans beforehand. She says, they sent me and only me the draft of the final episode and I immediately freaked out. I emailed Kevin Feige in all caps and I was like, are you doing this for real? Are you sure? I'm so honored. I was like yelling at him through an email. I was freaking out. This was the biggest deal in the world and the fact that it's happening in our show is crazy. Matt Litz is Bruno. He said he had no idea it was coming. He says, I remember I was having a conversation about it and the directors were like, yeah, you say this crazy thing. They wouldn't even tell me what it was. I was like, what's the deal here? They were very secretive about the whole thing. Vellani also recalls, it took a really long time to film that scene because anytime Matt would say that, I'd start giggling. I think we got the one take. The one you see in the episode is one of two that we got where I was mildly serious. It was really, really, really difficult. I think we have so many outtakes of me just breaking because I was so excited and giddy over this. 
Matt Lintz corroborates that, saying Iman was laughing. She was laughing almost every second. It was hilarious because she was like, this is so cool. She couldn't believe that I was saying this to her. Obviously, it's so big for her character. We were going through the scene and she kept laughing. It was making me laugh. And we have one of the directors says, well, it's like national security kind of stuff. You get the script and you're not allowed to ask too many questions, not even any questions. You're reading it and you're like, oh, for reals? We were like, so does this mean what we think? And you don't get an answer from Kevin. He just said, you shoot this, put the music there. And that's that. It was a big honor to have it in our episode, but we're like everybody. We have no idea what's going to happen in the future. We can only hope to be a part of it. Now, I do have to note that there are some people who seem to think that this is a horrific or uncalled for change. Um, a lot of them are saying that it doesn't do Ms. Marvel's character justice, yada, yada, yada. I'm sorry, what? Ms. Marvel just became the leader of the future of the MCU. She just became the first mutant in Marvel Cinematic Universe, which has been called for for actual years. It's been probably, it's been over a decade since people have been asking for mutants in the MCU, and she is the first. How are you gonna say that's not doing her character justice? You're stupid. Um, the MCU has never, ever been one-to-one -one common accurate. I've already mentioned, I've already ranted about one-to-one -one translations and how they are impossible to exist never ever gonna happen um it's and that's never been expected in the mcu before so why are people suddenly pretending like they expected it to be a one-to-one -one translation that's never been a thing in the mcu they have always had their creative differences that they make changes based on what is going to fit their agenda for what they're trying to get done in the MCU. What they're trying to get done in the MCU and what the comics are trying to achieve are not the same thing. The MCU is still constantly trying to set stuff up. Like, it's okay that they changed it. I'm, again, back to the Lord of the Rings fans thing. Like, geez, guys, like, they didn't, like take away her powers they didn't say oh yeah the powers only come from the bangle you're not actually a superhuman in any fight like that would have been something i would have been upset about that would have been dumb that would have been real stupid like absolutely pointless to even make the show about somebody like that if that was what the choice they were going to make is but they didn't they made her a freaking mutant what everybody has been asking for in the mcu for over a decade how are we going to be mad about that it's amazing um, anyway, uh, some theories on how they're going to introduce more mutants into the MCU after this. Uh, the most popular one that I've seen is, and I agree with this one very much so, that they could be revealing existing characters as being mutants in the future. Um, this could actually come to be a really close connection to the She-Hulk show, because if you watch the trailer, uh, Bruce does say something about it's in our family DNA, or it's in our... He says something about their family, right? Um, which, if you know the Hulks, obviously it's not necessarily accurate. For Bruce, it's a little different if you've read the Immortal Hulk series. Uh, he has some, some childhood stuff going on that changes that a little bit, but for... Um, for Jennifer, she was not a Hulk until she took that blood transfusion from him um, and got the gamma radiation that way. Um, but just based on the one line that Bruce kind of shoots out in the in the trailer about, oh, it's our family, whatever it was that he was saying, you know, they could say that 
the reason that Bruce didn't die when he uh, went through that horrific experience of transforming into the Hulk and the whole gamma explosion, all of that back in the day, um, they could say that he didn't die because he was a mutant. And, or they could even say that uh, definition of mutant in the MCU, this would really piss people off if they're mad about Kamala being a mutant. They could just say the definition of mutant in the MCU is nobody is born a mutant. You become a mutant by having your genes altered through various events. And they could say that's why the Hulk is a mutant. Or they could say he, you know, it's in his family DNA and they had the mutant exogene already and... Uh, that's why, you know, she becomes She-Hulk because she's just more inclined to it after a trans... I don't know. I hope you understand what I'm saying here, but it could be a connection to She-Hulk. There could even be a connection to Carol, you know. Carol could do these things because it turns out that she's actually a mutant, or Carol is now a mutant because that's what all of this um, Infinity stuff that happened in her first movie with the flight and the Kree and all that, that explosion, that could have made her a mutant. You know, we don't know what their definition of mutant is going to be in the MCU yet. Um, so people getting so worked up about what, what tiny little changes they've made so far, you guys are going to have a bad time <laughs> when this, when, when this stuff starts coming out in full force, you guys are going to have a bad time if you're that upset about this already. Um, some people are also saying that there might be an X-Men 97 crossover, which is going to be the upcoming X-Men animated show on Disney plus that is going to be continuation from the X-Men animated series where we get that obviously ba -da -ba -da -ba -ba theme from. Uh, super unlikely, in my opinion, that is something that came from Reddit. Uh, another Reddit theory um, was possibly if they do decide to bring in the Inhumans, uh, which it is rumored they might still be doing, what if they do Inhumans versus X-Men? That's a fairly modern plot line. It was kind of a dumb story in the comics. They could make it better for the movies. They could fix it, so to say. <laughs> uh, and then there's some people who are theorizing that uh, Rogue will be appearing in the Marvels now that we have mutants out here. You know, I just gotta mention, it's very strange how much of a hard-on people have for trying to get for trying to see the rogue and Carol thing happen in the com in the movie, it's a little weird how much people want to see these two women almost kill each other over the course of several years of turmoil. Like it's what <laughs> if they put the rogue and Carol story in there? I would very much like them to change that to have it less be just mindlessly bad, you know. <laughs> Now, the end credits scene has brought a little bit of deliberation among uh, viewers, myself included. Um, we know from the comics that at one point during Kamala, well, we know in the comics that Kamala's power set does include being able to technically transform into a different appearance. It's not something that really happens very often, but it does happen in the first arc of her series when she first becomes Ms. Marvel and gets her inhuman powers in the comics. She physically transforms into a blonde-haired, blue-eyed teenage girl superhero, taking on the form of the black and gold Ms. Marvel suit that Carol wore in the comics back in the day. The whole purpose of this being, um, you know, proving to herself that she doesn't have to be a, the same as Carol Danvers or all these other superheroes, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white girl, to be a hero. She can be what she is 
um, authentically and still be just as good, if not even better, of a superhero. So when this end credit scene happens, you can understand why there's a little bit of deliberation as to what actually happens. It would appear that either um, Kamala accidentally bloops into Carol Danvers, she kind of accidentally transforms into her, or possibly she and Carol change places and I myself have not landed on what I think it is before we talk about it any further I do have to mention that uh Nia DaCosta uh she actually directed this end credits scene she was a director of the Marvels um she is coming out, she has come out to say that that is Carol in the scene, that is not Kabbalah. However, um, I am not going to take that as fact because Nia DaCosta, as well as the directors of this episode of Ms. Marvel, did not know what they were filming when they filmed that scene. The directors of this episode say, she didn't, about Nia DaCosta filming this, this sequence, this end credit sequence, she, they say she didn't know when she shot it that it would necessarily be used for our tag. We didn't know about the tag either until we saw the final color grading of the last episode. All of a sudden, after the credits, we're like, oh, what is this? That's the genius way that Marvel keeps everything separate. They have a plan and they don't tell you what it is. They're like, don't worry about it. You'll see. So when I hear that Nia DaCosta has confirmed that is Carol that she tra that is there and not Kamala, that doesn't quite mean anything to me. Um, especially the fact that I I mean, how many times have actors come out and said, "Oh no, I'm not going to be in that MCU movie," and then they are. Like people lie, guys, in Hollywood. It's it's how they keep secrets a lot of times. So I am not a hundred percent convinced that this was Carol and Kamala switching places. Um, I think if that was what it was, I think Carol would have had some kind of reaction to suddenly being in a teenager's room, not just, oh no, this isn't good, especially since she's supposed to be off in space doing who knows what. And even the official Marvel.com rundown is very unclear about it as well. You, my cat is losing his mind. Uh, using specific terminology to not quite confirm it one way or another, and you can go check that out for yourself on the Marvel.com episode rundown if you would like to. Um, I gotta go save my cat. He's actually sitting on top of a comic box, uh, chasing his tail, so it's got a lid on it, so he's, it's fine. <laughs> Um, but whether or not this end credit scene, you're seeing that as her turning, transforming into Carol or switching places with Carol, the reason that that happens is obviously undisclosed information on her powers, which remember, we still don't know that much about. We know that they respond to her need for them. So it's possible that what happens here was Kamala is in her room surrounded by Carol merch thinking about her Ms. Marvel name and how she wants to live up to the legacy set by Carol Danvers as Captain Marvel. She desires it greatly as she sits surrounded by Carol's image. Um, so it doesn't much, it, it doesn't take much of an MCU style logic leap to assume that her powers translated that into an actual need and made it happen for her, whether that was putting Carol in her place or making her physically look like Carol. She was even holding the image of Carol's face upon the moment of transformation. Um, so it's definitely something to do with her powers. Now, additionally, um, 
mutants do often go through secondary mutations in the comics. Actually, the humans kind of do as well uh, in a similar way. For Emma Frost, for example, it was her diamond form, which blocks the psychic and physical attacks uh, from harm, right? Uh, for Beast, it was, you know, physical change of appearance to match his, like, animalistic power set. For Kamala, it, it was apparently uh, the constructs and then the physical transformation. We don't know if this physical, physical transformation is actually a transformation or a swap. Um, I'm still really, really pushing that Nia DaCosta... Um, because the directors came out and said we didn't know what we were filming when she was filming that clip. She thought she was doing it for the Marvels, and so did we. We were filming these things at the same time, so why would she be filming something for Ms. Marvel? So her coming out and saying that that is, in fact, Carol means absolutely nothing, um, in my opinion. I, and they could always change it, they could always have lied. I, I think I'm still very much on the fence as to if this is... A physical transformation or a swap, like a body swap. Um, which even saying body swap isn't very clear on what happens, because is it body swap like they swapped minds inside their bodies, or did the bodies physically change locations? Like it's even just saying body swap is not clear as to what could have happened. Now there was another point that makes me think about the difference of their appearances and how that was gonna be important to that scene that we see, whether it's a body swap whatever form of body swap it is. <laughs> um, and I struggled to put this respectfully for everybody involved. Um, when we first saw Brie Larson as Captain Marvel, she was obviously in incredible shape. She looked the part exactly. Um, if you follow her on social media, you might see that these days her physical appearance to, in my opinion at least, seems to be that more like of a bodybuilder or fitness model. Um, the kind of career where you can only afford the absolute minimal percentage of body fat to keep you alive and running, and the rest is lean muscle, right? Now, at some point after Kamala gets in her final costume, I was watching the episode and I expressed aloud to my husband how much I love the fact that they didn't make Iman do any obvious physical prep for joining this show. First off, she is a normal teenager, so she should look like it, and she does. But second, I think we as a society, and God, I hope so at least, have moved beyond the thinking that you have to look like ScarJo in Iron Man 2 in order to be a valid superhero. I like to, th I kind of think of it as a um, second element to the uh, no brown kid from Jersey City saves the world kind of thinking. From that perspective, only the fittest of the fit could be heroes as well, for going into that kind of sports fitness model look that Brie Larson has. Um, and I mentioned all of this for a reason. That's because when this kind of switch happens, whatever it is, the physical difference is not just that we now have replaced her with a blonde-haired, blue-eyed white woman. It's that now there is this fitness model in her place, something that is totally totally unrealistic for somebody like Kamala. In addition, I have to add, Iman is not as petite as your standard female Hollywood types. Like myself, she has broad shoulders and is built very athletically in her actual bone structure. Brie Larson, on the other hand, is quite petite, though intensely leanly muscled now, driving the difference after this whole switch in more than just who they are. It's, in phys it's a physical difference in more than just 
who they are. I, I hope I make this, that makes sense. So all things considered, um, this is something that I am very interested to see worked out in the Marvels. If this is Kamala taking on her this form, um, will she do that on the regular, which will that then anger Carol or get the attention of Monica? How are they going to address the physical differences between Kamala and Carol without body shaming any of these very much in shape women? Also, now this I save the best for last, I think. Uh, we saw Captain Marvel in the Shang-Chi post credit scene where we see Wong, Carol, and Bruce explain that when Shang-Chi used the Ten Rings, some kind of beacon was sent out, some kind of message. Could Kamala's bangle be doing the same thing or perhaps be responding to it? Is this why whatever happened in that credit scene happened because Carol was out looking for where the signal was connecting to? Does this connect to why the Ten Rings symbol was in the fourth episode of Ms. Marvel when the bangle was first discovered on a probably Kree arm? I think out of everything, this is the most solid theory. The bangle or bangles is or are connected to the Ten Rings in some way, shape, or form. I feel like that is the biggest, the closest fact the closest thing to being factual that we can leave this episode with. Now, uh, as for things that are coming up next, um, the next Marvel projects, the first one we're going to be seeing is going to be August 17th, just under a month away. That is the She-Hulk show. As far as we know, that's going to be a one episode drop and it will be six episodes total. After that, we know that Black Panther Wakanda Forever is coming out on November 11th of this year. And then the Guardians of the Galaxy, Galaxy Holiday Special will be out in December. What If Season 2 will supposedly be out sometime in 2022 as well. And Secret Invasion is generally speculated to be premiering in 2022, but I would honestly be pretty surprised by that um, myself. And then we have Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania premiering February 17th, 2023. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, May 5th, 2023. And of course, the Marvels on July 28th of next year. We also know that there will be a Fantastic Four movie, an Echo show, an Agatha House of Harkness show, a show for Armor Wars, for Ironheart, and at least one as of yet untitled Wakanda-based TV project. I also found a really fun article on the Bruno versus Kamala, or sorry, Bruno versus Kamran Kamala romance in the Ms. Marvel series. It is a Marvel.com article. If you would like to check that out, it will also be linked below in the description. There were a couple of things that the show left unanswered, uh, specifically the Kree arm, the possibility of there being a second bangle, the Ten Ring symbol on the floor, and the Noor dimension. Those four, all of which I think will be likely answered over the coming arcs of the Marvels, Quantumania, maybe even a little bit of the whole mutant thing we might see in She-Hulk, for all we know. Um, so that's, that's, I think, very exciting. Those are going to be the questions that we're going to get answered probably. Or those are the questions that did not get answered because they are more long-term plot lines for the future of the MCU. Now, smaller things, um, Bruno did leave a note in Kamala's locker um, that 
the, the way they cut that sequence was a little bit odd. Uh, he's wearing his Stanford jacket because he's going to, or whatever, Caltech, I guess, Caltech jacket because he's about to go to California for a semester at Caltech. He slips a note into Kamala's locker, and then the next scene that we see him in is him um, telling Kamala about her being or having a mutation in her genes. Um, is that note going to end up being important or was that just like, yeah, he's saying goodbye and then so that she, when she comes to school next, she can see the note said goodbye, have a good first day of school, whatever. It could, it could end up not being important at all. Um, but the other thing is damage control. We saw that the, um, the scary racist lady was fortunately relieved of duty after going against her boss's orders to retreat and instead doing the opposite of that and pulling in more people to shoot children. Always good stuff, you know. God. Um, so she's not going to be involved, more likely. But we know that damage control is still around. We have this dude who was her boss who is now going to be scrambling to clean up her mess. I definitely feel like damage control is going to stick around as a entity in the MCU. Very curious if they are going to be uh, at some point transitioned into Cradle, which is in the comics, the basically, I don't know, it's, it's, it's an acronym, but it basically, uh, I don't, I don't know exactly what it stands for, but basically they are the corporation or the, the privatized military group or whatever that, uh, fights against there being any underage, under 21 year old superheroes. Um, so they, they try to like get that legally made so that you can't be a superhero if you're under a certain age. That's what Cradle is. Um, damage control was theorized as to possibly being cradle, obviously turned out to be damage control in this, but as with the, uh, the boss now scrambling to pick up the pieces of the mess that the scary racist lady left behind in her rage, um, <laughs> it's possible that the damage control will get tweaked into being something a little bit different to continue being able to work. Now, I have, there's the last couple of things regarding this episode. Um, just some stuff on Iman Vellani, who plays, of course, Ms. Marvel. Uh, a couple interviews for her. The first was a Vogue interview. She says, I just have a newfound appreciation for the entire culture and how lively and colorful and grand everything is. She's talking about Muslim culture or brown uh, Pakistani culture. Brown people have so much fun, and I don't know if I realize that. I mean, my family is fun, but before this, I only had my family and my family friends to look at as examples. But now I know all these incredible, talented creatives, our producers, writers, and directors on Ms. Marvel, whom come from South, e South Asian Muslim backgrounds, and they've brought so much of themselves to Kamala's story. I didn't realize there could be this space for South Asians in this industry." my heart that makes my heart like cry and also happy at the same time uh and then she says on the mcu designation as we know the mcu is not 616 they're stupid uh what she has to say about that in an interview with deadline of hollywood she says um she shared a theory about her own numerical designation she says i don't believe that the mcu is 616 uh as much as kevin feige can make us think it's 616, it is 199999. Uh, this is the on-screen uh, uh, universe designation that Marvel has already given in the comics to the MCU Earth 199999. Oh, God, how many nines is that? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 nines. So Earth 199999. Okay, got it. And finally, uh, from the directors on 
Iman Vellani herself, they say, she is the biggest fan of the MCU. Iron Man is her favorite. She didn't believe that one day she would be an actress in the MCU and she would be a part of it, the same way Kamala Khan didn't believe that one day she would be a superhero. There are a lot, there are really a lot of parallels between her story and the story of Ms. Marvel. I think one very big emotional moment for her and for us was the rooftop scene we did where she says, it's not like the brown girl from Jersey City saved the world. We had a deep, deep conversation about what we went through, being Moroccans from Belgium and eventually making bad boys for life and being transported to Hollywood out of nowhere and how she went through a kind of similar experience. I think that by the time we did the finale, she had really grown into a professional actress. It was really great to see that evolution between the first day of shooting where she's this fangirl. By the last day, she really became a mature and professional artist. Uh, that's the end of what I have to say for the Ms. Marvel show. I would just like to add that bringing in actors and creatives like Iman Vellani is how you are going to continue making good MCU content. Finally, I'm going to talk a little bit about San Diego Comic-Con. Uh, there's a fair amount of rumors of what to expect specifically from the MCU camp, from the Marvel camp. So we're going to go over what these rumors are. If you would rather wait and uh, just see the truth for yourself at Comic-Con, it will be taking place this Thursday through Sunday, July 21st through 24th in San Diego. So here are the rumors for Deadpool. Uh, it says the next Deadpool movie is going to be announced and it won't be titled Deadpool 3. For Black Panther, they'll have the first trailer for Wakanda Forever. For Secret Invasion, they'll reveal the main cast and share some footage. For Blade, Mahershala Ali, Kit Harrington, Aaron Pierre, uh, Milan Ray, and Bassam Tariq will be in attendance and Anthony Starr will play Dracula. Fun fact, Anthony Starr is the guy who plays Homelander, so just let that settle with you for a second. As for the Marvels, it says Brie, Iman, and Tayona will be there when they show their footage. Zawe Ashton, who is going to be the villain, will not be present. It also says Anson Mount will reprise his role as Black Bolt. Jodie Turner-Smith will join as Medusa, which is a recast in the post-credits of the movie setup of the movie setting up Universal Inhumans as a big cosmic story going forward. Uh, obviously that one's kind of out of left field, but the only reason I can see that being possibly accurate is because the Inhumans do have extremely close ties to the Kree. The Inhumans uh, were basically the experiments of the Kree when they came in prehistoric times and did a little mess around with human DNA and then left, and what was there in their wake was the inhuman species. So that is what I can kind of see. And obviously Captain Marvel being related to the Kree in her own ways, depending on comic and movie, is different ways, but um, I, that is why I could possibly see that being a thing. Although I would still be very surprised. World War Hulk, it says that they originally planned to have it be a movie, but it is now going to be a four-part series for Disney+. Plus. Guardians of the Galaxy 3 says they will show some footage. 
Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantum Mania, we will see some footage with actors Rudd, Lily, and Newton present. Jonathan Mayers will send in a video as Kang. Wonder Man will be announced with Henry Golding as Simon Williams. Evan Peters is returning as Ralph Boner, but he may have a new name. He will likely be a side character in the show. And then for Daredevil, it's going to be called Man Without Fear, and it will be announced with Charlie Cox starring alongside a new cast, a recast, of Aiza Gonzalez as Electra. Finally, it says the big reveal at the end will be like the announcement for Blade in 2019. It will just be some titles and their associated stars. Feige will announce a second mutant-centered film with Giancarlo Esposito as Charles Xavier. Now, Giancarlo Esposito, if you are unsure, he was um, in Mandalorian as well as Breaking Bad. That should narrow down the the options for you to figure out who he is, uh, as well as Glenn Powell will be Scott Summers. Uh, Glenn Powell was apparently in, I just, I just went down a rabbit hole on Google. He looks just like Tom Hopper, who was Luther in the Umbrella Academy. <laughs> and I just spent a solid five minutes, I paused this and I spent a solid five minutes trying to figure out if this was the same actor. It's not the same actor. Luther is played by Tom Hopper. And Glenn Powell was in Top Gun and, or the new Top Gun, I guess, and is not Luther. Okay, I just had to, I had to figure that out. So he's going to be playing, supposedly, Scott Summers. Uh, we also have some rumors regarding D23, which is the big Disney showcase happening in September. Uh, it says that Marvel is saving the announcement of Captain America 4, Fantastic Four, Thunderbolts, and Shang-Chi 2 for D23. Also there, they will talk Armor Wars, where Nate Moore will executive produce alongside our man, I don't know why this thing says our man, Don Cheadle, <laughs> John Favreau, Sam Rockwell, and Walton Goggins will reprise their MCU roles. Uh, for Fantastic Four, it says Jamie Dornan will play Reed Richards. You will know him from Fifty Shades of Grey. Amanda Seyfried will play Sue Storm. I think that is a god-awful cast. Uh, Joe Keery will play Johnny Storm, another god-awful cast. Johnny Storm is supposed to be so hot that both men and women uh, question their sexuality when they see him. I, I should say both men and lesbians question their sexuality when they see him. Joe Keery is the weird, square-haired guy from Stranger Things, so not a good choice in my opinion. Uh, Steven Spielberg is apparently in final negotiations to direct and serve as a producer, which sounds god-awful. Keep him way the fuck away from superhero stuff. That is not going to be good. Uh, also, uh, it says that if he does end up coming aboard, he is going to be the one casting Ben Grimm. I don't know why that's... That's just weird. I really hope that's not true. Uh, also, they say Agatha House of Harkness that Jack Schaefer and Mary Lovanos will executive produce. It's going to start Catherine Hahn, of course, with Hannah Waddingham, Catherine O'Hara, Amy Poehler, and Hunter Schaefer, who is going to portray Jennifer Kale. Uh, Hunter Schaefer was, let's see, the character in Euphoria whose name was... Jules. Okay, got it. Jules in Euphoria. I hadn't seen the last season of Euphoria. It was a bit too dark for me, and I was going through some stuff, so I just didn't want to add, you know, how it's, it's enough's enough sometimes for that kind of stuff. But anyway, uh, she was Jules, um, and if she's going to be playing Scott, uh, Scott Summers, I'm reading the long line, if she's going to be playing Jennifer Kale, Jennifer Kale is a witch, which is why she would be related to the Agatha House of Harkness stuff, but Jennifer Kale has 
connections to the Hellstroms, Damon and Satana, um, as well as really, uh, I mean, Doctor Strange is a big one, um, a little bit with, um, who am I, who am I, but Nico, um, and Topaz. Actually, Jennifer Kale was in a series, a, a short series with Satana and Topaz um, as they are sent on a mission from Doctor Strange. So adding Jennifer Kale in here, obviously we don't know who these other characters or these other actors are going to play. Amy Poehler, Catherine O'Hara. I mean, wow, that's, that's some big names. Um, but I am thrilled to imagine uh, especially if Jennifer Jennifer Kale is a bit of a deep cut magical character in Marvel Comics. She has not even been around probably since that Witches series, which I want to say was 2004. Oh, I was right. 2004. I just pulled it up in, in Google. Um, Wikipedia, actually. But yeah. Um, but yeah, that that's going to open some doors. I, for one, would love to see Satana in the MCU because um, I've just started doing, as I mentioned before, some research on her and I think she's really cool. Um, and I would just love to see an MCU where you meet Satana before you meet your brother Damon. Because it's always been kind of like Damon comes first in the comics. So I would like to see Satana be the Hellstrom who we meet in the MCU first. And obviously there was that Hellstrom series that I didn't watch on Hulu um, that she was apparently in. I will probably never watch that. I'm not interested. Uh, finally, the last thing that they have here is that Spider-Man 4 is going to be happening. We just won't hear anything about it at either San Diego Comic-Con or D23. That is what I have for today's weekly episode. Uh, come back again next week. We have another episode scheduled the 25th of July, and that is going to be episode 73. We'll be talking, hopefully, October comic book solicitations, um, comic book picks and pulls. Ooh, we'll be doing a Comic-Con San Diego wrap-up, so I'll have absolutely everything that is worth learning from what they announced at Comic-Con San Diego. I will be covering all of that uh, in depth. So if you miss anything, I will have that all here. Uh, thank you very much for listening to this week's episode. I had a lot of fun making this one. I had a lot of fun talking about the future of the MCU between both the finale of Ms. Marvel and the speculation slash rumors for San Diego Comic-Con. And that's going to carry in real strongly to the next episode. So hopefully we'll have some fun with that then too. Uh, as I mentioned in the beginning, uh, you can find all of my links for social media, my website, as well as uh, supporting the podcast in the description below. Uh, the best way to support the podcast and the easiest way, aside from simply listening to it, is sharing it and uh, giving it a rating on whatever platform you listen to it as, because that's how the various platforms showcase podcasts. Uh, they, they showcase the ones who have recently been reviewed. So uh, that is the best way to support the podcast. Uh, and of course, there are all kinds of other ways linked below. Have a fantastic week. Uh, this heat wave is quite brutal. Um, it's really something else. And I, I hope you all are drinking a lot of water. If you are in a place that does not normally get hot and it is getting hotter than ever there. Um, please listen to all of the advice about staying cool and drinking water. It is more important than you probably expect. Um, as somebody who has lived in California most of my life, the heat can really, it can literally kill you. So you need to, you need to keep on your drinking. Hydrate hippies. 
and we'll see you next week.